This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. On this edition of Update One, we speak with David Ensor, who was a news correspondent for National Public Radio for five years, for ABC News for 18 years, and for CNN for eight years. He then had a stint in public service at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, as Director of Communications and Public Diplomacy, helping create a vibrant press and broadcast sector, after which he served for four years as Director of the Voice of America. He's also been affiliated with the Atlantic Council the Harvard Kennedy School, and George Washington University. David, let's start with the Voice of America, which underwent quite an uproar after you left, and it has yet to acquire a new boss. What's your take on the state of affairs there? Fortunately, President Biden's team appointed a, an acting CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is the umbrella that, of which Voice of America is the largest part by far, And they appointed a lady named Kalu Chow, who was my deputy towards the end of my time at Voice of America, and who's absolutely terrific. And she has reversed almost all of the major steps that Mr. Trump's appointee took and is doing a lot to try to protect VOA's journalism from any kind of possibility of interference in the future. But really, I do think legislation is probably needed. Do you keep in touch with former colleagues? How's morale these days? Morale's pretty good from what I hear, yes. And you know, VOA is doing what it does well, which is really to, uh, to try to broadcast truthful journalism to the world in many, many languages without fear or favor. Meanwhile, U.S. broadcast media are under siege in Moscow and Beijing, while Russia Today TV and Chinese Global Television are doing what they do in both New York and Washington and around the world. What's the state of this information competition or even information warfare as you see it? It's never going to end. It's a constant sort of struggle. I think that the West and Western media need to rally around the concepts of truth, truthfulness, fact, and fairness. And it's true that in the digital age, propaganda and lies are quite a lot more effective than they used to be. But I have to hope, and sometimes I get depressed about this, but I have to hope that the truth will out. And I think in the long run, it will. Journalists are being imprisoned and killed around the world, and it looks like the bad guys are working their will, going so far as to hijack an airplane to arrest a critical journalist. Yes, these are not good times, and they're, and they're tough times for journalism. But if you look around, there's a lot of courage among young journalists around the world in all sorts of places where courage is actually a pretty tough thing to have sometimes. So I I remain hopeful, but I I must say we're not, these are not wonderful times for journalism. Which brings us to Poland, where you worked as a correspondent and bureau chief for ABC News, when a Polish pope was a major world personality, as was Lech Wałęsa, the labor leader who became the democratically elected president. What's been the fate of Polish democracy? I covered this really important historical part of, of Poland's history in the 80s when, uh, when a Polish pope and, uh, and a legendary labor leader changed history. 
their combined efforts and those of thousands of Poles brought down communism. So it's close to my heart. I watch it closely. I'm, I'm worried about the situation. For, for the second time, a few years ago, the Poles elected a, a far-right government uh, that, called the Law and Justice Party. That government has been doing a lot of things that, that are causing concern in the West and certainly worry me. They've been trying to uh, weaken the independence of the court system in Poland, and they have been a series of other steps, but they've also been attacking the independence of media. Everything from uh, trying to get their friends in, in business to buy up media organizations, uh, newspapers and magazines in Poland, en masse. A Polish state oil company has been encouraged to do that, to threatening the license of the one really popular TV news channel in Poland, TVN24. And I should mention in that connection that I do, that com company is owned by Discovery, and I do some consulting for Discovery on this issue. But I'm only speaking right now, giving you my own views. I'm not speaking for Discovery. I'd like to stress that. Anyway, the license was up for, for question, and there was a lot of pressure, fortunately, from the Biden administration and others around the, the West, but particularly from the White House and from the State Department. And the polls blinked, the government blinked, and they did uh, reissue a, another 10-year license for TVN24. Unfortunately, the story may not be over. There are other ways that the government can come after Discovery and TVN, and there are other licenses, for example, that are coming up that TVN has in Poland. So there is mutterings from the government about still trying to attack the independence of that, of that station, which is the most popular news station in the country. You mentioned television, in particular a 24-hour news channel. What about newspapers? Are there any independent judgments there? Well, Gazeta Wyborcza, the great sort of uh, clarion newspaper of the Solidarity era, is still publishing and still very widely read, um, and it is still quite a uh, critical newspaper, critical of Mr. Kaczynski and his Law and Justice Party's government. So that is still in place, but as I mentioned, a large number of other newspapers and magazines and media outlets have been bought or forced to close in one way or another. There's really been a crackdown on free media in Poland, done somewhat in the style of uh, Hungary's uh, Viktor Orban, who's also had a sort of a, an effort to close down free media in Hungary. Having an oil company buy up media, isn't that a page from Vladimir Putin's playbook? You could almost say that, yes. I mean, it's, it's rather ironic. This is a, a government that describes itself as conservative and nationalist and to the right but they seem to want to nationalize things. They are not that interested in having a multitude of voices, especially if any of them are even mildly critical of their government. You mentioned American pressure because an American corporation was involved, but what about the European Union, which wants to punish Poland for its refusal to follow European laws while benefiting from EU money? Will that cause the Polish government to change its course? Not so far. Perhaps it will ultimately. There's an awful lot of money at stake. Now the Poles are being very defiant, the Polish government, and saying, you're going to have to back down, EU. We're going to bring various pressure to bear on you in return. They seem to think it's electorally good for them with their base to, to take this position. But the fact is that the Poles, not Poles people, but polling shows that 80% of the citizenship of Poland are strongly in favor of continued membership in the European Union. So I don't know how far the Law and Justice Party can take this. We'll be watching that with great interest. But the European Union doesn't want a Polish exit. Is that 
possibly in the cards? Well, it's been being written about because some of the things Poland has done and said lately sound like a poll exit, as they're calling it, might be in the offing. But the government insists, no, 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 we're just trying to get fair terms. But the terms they want, you know, include being allowed to suppress the independence of the court system. And that is totally against the rules in the EU. So the stage is set for a confrontation that could be serious. And I don't know if you're going to raise the, the other big issue, which is the immigrants, the immigration from Belarus, but that's getting all tied up in the same contretemps between Poland and the EU. What has been the impact of the refugee crisis that the dictator of Belarus has manufactured on the Polish border? Here's a case where the Polish government is exactly right, and their policies are correct, in my opinion. They have strengthened the border. They've put barbed wire there. They're trying to protect their border. They're not going to let people just come in, no matter who they are. And they are complaining vociferously about what Lukashenko has done, which is basically flying in plane loads of, of refugees from the Middle East and trying to force them into the forest and then across the border. They are saying that's unacceptable. The EU is strongly supporting Poland on this. So you have a, a complicated situation where the EU strongly supports Poland on a very important issue that's going on right now and is on the news every night. At the same time, they are deeply critical of Poland's policy over the last year or two or three in terms of democratic values, having a rule of law, the basics. But hasn't Poland been notably unwilling to accept immigrants? Well, Poland is not keen to have immigrants from anywhere except maybe Ukraine. And uh, they have taken in quite a few uh, Ukrainians, but they don't seem to want to have anyone from the Middle East. One thing that unites the Polish people is distrust of the Soviet Union, and let Vladimir Putin is doing his best to destabilize Ukraine, the Baltic states, and points west. What should the Europeans, in your view, and the United States be doing? We need to keep NATO strong, and we need to consult closely with our NATO allies and, where might need be, reinforce their defenses not only militarily, but in other ways as well. We need to be unified with our allies, most of all. And we should listen to them and take their, their views into consideration. I mean, for example, there's this issue of whether to continue to have a nuclear umbrella for our NATO allies. In my personal opinion, we should continue to have it. Turning to Afghanistan, where you worked for more than a year, I suppose the question no longer is, what's to become of a free press? But journalism organizations are raising money to help relocate Afghan journalists. What do you know about whether people you met and worked with have been able to get out? I'm getting um, dozens of emails and calls from Afghans that I knew or that know someone who knows me desperately trying to get help to get out of Afghanistan, or if they've gotten out of Afghanistan, to get to the next place they're trying to get to, if they're in, say, Uzbekistan or somewhere. So it's a pretty sad story, what's happening to most of the young people who I used to know who are working in, in journalism in, in Kabul. Although Taliban is not totally closed down, there, there still are independent stations operating in Kabul. Some of their journalists are hiding for their lives, but as I understand it, there still is some diversity in the media in Afghanistan, and I hope that continues. Well, the Taliban is obviously in dire need of outside help, even to feed their own people. Is there any leverage in that? One would hope so. One would hope that the, the West could use some of the leverage it has from holding back on bank accounts and, and certainly denying an investment 
to uh, get the Taliban to be more reasonable towards its own people. It's going to be interesting because the Taliban, the last time they were in power, they banned music. And uh, there were only 10,000 kids in school, all of them male. In the time since the Taliban fell and when they've come back to power now, most of the school-aged kids were in school and 40% of them were female. And so you have a whole generation of young Afghans who are now literate. They read, they write, they're plugged in, they have a cell phone, they know what's going on in the world. And the Taliban simply can't impose some of the limitations that they did last time around, and I think they've said so, they've acknowledged that. But it'll be interesting to see what they can do and how does a, a repressive Islamist government conduct itself now. It's not so, it's easy to be an opposition, you know, Mujahideen type people with guns, but when you actually have to run a country and people are starting to starve and some of the inconsistencies of your policies are becoming obvious, uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Taliban does in the next year or two. The project of nation building, even of promoting democratic governance, is it overly ambitious? Korea and Japan and Germany uh, have done quite well, it seems to me. And they have something else in common, which is that nobody left. And there still are U.S. forces in those places and a lot of involvement. I think if we, what we need as a power in this world is greater patience. In other words, I would not have withdrawn from Afghanistan. Yeah. At the time that uh, the president decided to withdraw American forces from Afghanistan, there hadn't been an American casualty in 18 months. There were only 2,500 approximately troops there. The price was not all that high. So I think the decision was a domestic political decision. It's a popular one, and maybe he's right, because the challenge facing the United States, if you look at the world around us now, is so much China and the Chinese model. And clearly, China and the United States are competing and arguing over which system is the better one. Uh, so he may have felt, and I can have some sympathy, that you know he just we couldn't carry on with little wars like the one in Afghanistan or stay, stay involved in those kinds of things. On this edition of Update One, we've been speaking with David Ensor, a former news correspondent for NPR, ABC, and CNN, and also a U.S. Embassy official in Afghanistan and director of The Voice of America. Thank you, David. I'm Irv Chapman in Washington for the National Press Club. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's Update the Number One Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.